0: Telling the story of a former colony post-independence is tricky, be it a colony in Latin America, the Middle East, or East Asia. So where does the idea of the nation slot in? How does one talk about decolonization, post-Empire, then there are the fallback topics of language, race, and even war. So today on New Books in Middle East Studies, we're going to be looking at the topic in a place that does not really get much coverage in professional history, Sudan and the question of development post-World War II. My guest today is Alden Harrington-Young, who is Assistant Professor in the Departments of History and of Global Studies and Modern Languages um, at Drexel University, where he's also Director of Africana Studies. He received his BA from Columbia, his MA from the London School of Economics and Political Science, and his PhD from Princeton University. He teaches African history, economic history, and the history of Arab and African interactions. So he's the author of many articles and a book, the subject of today's interview, Transforming Sudan, out 2017 from Cambridge University Press. Congratulations on the book, Alden. Uh, Alden, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you again. So um, one of the reasons I was so excited to have this book on the podcast is because Sudan is so tricky to slot neatly into Middle East studies. This is the New Books in Middle East Studies podcast, but I often like to play with what the Middle East means and whether something has connections to the Middle East. But with Sudan also, I think it's it, it, Sudan doesn't necessarily receive the limelight that it deserves in Middle East studies because it is an Arabic-speaking nation, which to some extent... Uh, it, it has those connections to the middle east in that sense but at the same time it's an african nation so i guess that's my question to you is it is Sudan arab is it african is it both where would you orient it
1: i think that's a um i think that's a tricky question that haunts um, in some ways Sudanese politics and in my case for the the economic experts or what i like to call them economic diplomats that would become the first generation of of Sudanese financial and economic managers, beginning in the 1950s, I think they were very much concerned about these questions of where to locate Sudan, and it had a direct impact on the idea and practices of development in Sudan. Because one of the innovations or one of the early um, breakthroughs of of development of economic development in the 1950s was the ability to list um, to create lists of nations based, and compare them based on GDP and other seemingly universal metrics. And for the Sudanese, if you were an African country, if Sudan was an African country, Sudan was a relatively successful, prosperous African country, particularly if you focus primarily on the regions around Khartoum and northern Sudan. But if they were comparing Sudan with their Arab neighbors, Sudan then was a relatively underdeveloped country, um, if you looked solely at the metrics, something like per capita GDP. And these were all, of course, gross estimates. But it fed into this question of where would Sudan fit? Would Sudan fall backwards in their minds to become to the level of a country like Tanganyika, which was relatively poor, or would it progress forward? Um, to catch up with countries like Algeria or or Jordan uh, or even Syria that they often look to.
0: Um, What I really appreciated about the book is that it really forced me to think about It forced me to think in terms of economic history, which I'm not used to doing. I'm training to be a historian of intellectual and cultural history. And your answer right there just sort of gave me another way of thinking about what the Middle East is and what Africa is. Um, Another sort of stumbling block for me when thinking about Sudan is the fact that its colonial status makes it really difficult to orient. Um, Sometimes when I think about Sudan, I think about the fact that all of a sudden the Egyptians who are so central to the story of Middle East, the Middle East and North Africa, partially because the field has focused almost overtly on the city of Egypt because of easy access to archives until fairly recently. Um, but in this story, I feel like the, the Egyptians sort of are flipped on their head. Um, they're, to some extent, the colonizers of Sudan. So I was wondering if you could sort of give us um, a sense of how Sudan's colonial status, uh, both with relation to the British and to the Egyptians, made it also unique.
1: I mean, I think for Sudan, it's a very interesting question um, in defining Sudanese nationalism. Sudanese nationalism takes on a dual focus in which decolonization essentially means independence from both Britain and Egypt. And of course, these ties continue throughout the independence period but it's very much a struggle of defining what it means to be Sudanese um, as both not Egyptian and not um, British or not under the domination of either country. And Arab identity becomes very important in this model. You see this in the early, um, in the early writings about um, development in Sudan. So for instance, when they talk about the Nile in Sudan, um, Mekhi Abbas, the first um, governor general of the Sudanese Gezira scheme, the largest agricultural scheme in Africa, he very purposefully uses the metaphor of Mesopotamia, not the Egyptian Delta. In a way, the Arab world becomes a way for the Sudanese to distance themselves also from the Egyptians. They can look at the Arab Peninsula and their long contacts um, with the Arab Peninsula through the Red Sea to also create an identity that is distinct from that um, of Egypt and its Arab project.
0: So we're going to get back to nationalism in a bit because another thing I absolutely love about the book is that your emphasis is that nationalism is not the only answer to um, the development of many of these post-colonial and decolonizing nations. Um, So this book is the story of both both pre- and post-independent Sudan in a sense, or even the decolonization of Sudan told through, as you put it, the history of its, ec- of its economics, um, but also economic history, which you very much paint throughout the book as these two inextricable things, that the knowledge of experts, but also economic history um, are very interrelated. So there's a clear need for a multifaceted telling of Sudanese history, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a vastly underpopulated field, Um, I think that motivates the book to some extent. I'm going to make a guess there. But another thing you, you credit in the first line of your acknowledgements is your own parents' involvement in urban politics. So I guess generally what motivated you to pursue this project?
1: I was really interested in um, – and maybe it's a question that exists in my mind, but – so you have the heroes of the independent struggle – and, you know, it's, it's easy to tell these stories. I have some colleagues that work on Algerian history, and they often talk about this. You know, it's easy to tell the stories, or not easy, but we often tell the stories of those who took over or those who won independence. But in the Sunnis case, the men who won independence were rather old um, by the time they came to power. They had been fighting in many cases since the 1920s. Um, but a new generation comes to manage independence. And how do you manage independence, um, political independence in a world in which you still have to participate in a world economy and an international system that is not of your own creation? And so I was really interested in this problem of how do you manage and preserve independence in the face of massive constraints? And I thought about that as something, from my own experience of what it was like, for for instance, for the first African-American mayors to take power after the civil rights struggle beginning in the 1970s and in 1980s, you might take over a city or you might come to power in a particular city. But you didn't, and very often in most cases, in almost all cases, you didn't um, win power at the state level or at the federal level. So, you're in control of one small part, but you're not in control of the totality. And so, how do we think about the compromises and the calculations that are made in a country like Sudan for something like development? Sudan, Sudanese intellectuals can conceive of development in many different ways, but they have to mold that development project and the state building project. Um, into forms that are legible and tolerable in the international system.
0: I'm glad you brought up development because that's um, a bit of my next question is economic planning. How does it manifest in the down broadly? Because I felt like the book really just, it I mean, it was all these different economic plans that were laid out. And my only exposure to that Prior to this book, actually, was, I think, what looms large in my imagination is the the, the five-year plans in um, Stalinist Russia. Um, but here, there were all of these economic plans that you laid out very neatly. So how does economic uh, planning manifest in Sudan?
1: I mean, today, I think sometimes when we think of economic planning, we think of it as something um, of an oddity, right? Or something, you know, from the... the The Soviet or socialist world. But in the 1950s, economic planning was a very common practice. And in fact, Sudanese economic planning grows out of um, British ideas during the 1940s that every colony of Britain should have um, a development plan. And these new ideas about making colonialism something that was beneficial to both the colonized and the colonizer. I mean, Part of this context is also the mass mobilization for World War II. And so, in that period in which you would have more economic planning, for instance, in the United States. But, and so what Sudan was doing, what Sudanese intellectuals were doing, and Sudanese experts were doing was something very common. They were participating in what was part of a global um, discourse about economic management. And in particular, there was a conceit that, um, that state governments, could scientifically manage economic relations in their society in such a way to cause rapid um, a rapid growth in the standard of living? And one of the arguments, intellectual arguments, that the Sudanese are taking from, um, from scholars such as like, the Caribbean, um, from Fabian socialists and, and scholars of, from the Caribbean, like Arthur Lewis, or you could see it in the works of somebody like Eric Williams, or you can see it in many of the South Asian uh, intellectuals of this period, was the idea that what was wrong with what Britain had done um, in managing its colonies? They they turned the British dialogue of colonialism on its head. The British had often said, and the Europeans in general had often said that they had colonies in order to benefit um, the countries that they manage. But beginning in the 1930s, there was an effort to calculate the long-run growth in in different colonies. So people like Colin Clark, for instance, um, produced measurements. And you could see that actually the gap was not closing between the colonized territories and the European metropoles. If anything, they were actually getting poorer. This would hit particularly hard in Egypt as well. And they were able to turn this dialogue on its head, and they were able to argue that using economic planning, if they had political sovereignty, that they would be able to economically manage their countries in such a way that that they would be able to greatly increase the standard of living. And it was a period in time in which both the United States and the Soviet Union were also, in their own ways, encouraging um, this belief, this idea that through scientific rational management, it would be possible to um, for the vast majority of the world to modernize.
0: Another thing I really enjoy, enjoyed about this book um, is the fact that you lay out these different contexts. You've just done a really good job of laying out sort of how the global factored into this very local story. Um, the nat- sort of the um, national then the regional and then the global uh, so I was throughout the book I was sort of struck by the by sort of the geography of Sudan itself um, the relationship between the periphery and the center in particular its center being to some extent the capital it also seems to be very much a story of experts and you invoke Timothy Mitchell at different points in the book so what is the power dynamic? running through this, both geographically, but also just in terms of the various institutions and individuals who um, are characters in your book to some extent? I mean, one of the interesting things to think
1: about is the, is the role of Egypt, particularly in the 19th century in the expanding Ottoman Egyptian state. Um, and the fact that Khartoum and Omdurman, these are 19th century cities. Um, these are not the old cities. These are not pre-colonial cities in, in Sudan. And the elites that would come to dominate those cities are also elites, the Sudanese elites that come to dominate those cities and the foreign elites are elites that are formed um, in the 19th century moment of Egyptian um, colonialism, the Mahdist state, and British colonialism. These are elites that are born out of this. And in many ways, they... They represent other parts of the country, but they still, these are cities that still have um, a colonial relationship with the rest of the country in many ways. And because of that, at independence, one of the questions for them is how are they going to integrate the different regions of Sudan into this economy that is largely centered um, on the capital? And I think what the experts are doing, they are they are the products um, of both this local problem, which is how would the elite stabilize itself after the colonial arrangements are done, especially since it's an elite that was born out of the colonial experience. And how will they integrate into this world economy that they find... Um, after the British Empire, what will it mean to be, uh, for Sudan to be a successful exporting nation in a new world economy?
0: One, I mean, you just said exporting, and I want to sort of tie that into my next question, which is um, natural resources. In Sudan, there seems to be this... um, this, the, the material focus and then almost a tension between cotton and cattle as Sudan's natural resources. So how does this play out through the different stages of Sudan's economic development in this post, this post and decolonizing moment? I think cotton is
1: a very interesting crop in terms of um, thinking about the challenge that the Sudanese state faced at independence. Cotton was never grown in Sudan. Cotton has, I mean, in almost all cases, is an export crop in countries like Sudan. Cotton was grown in Sudan beginning in the 1920s, primarily for export um, on a large scale, beginning in the 1920s, primarily for export throughout the British Empire. Um, And it was seen, even in the early writings, the idea of building things like the Gezerra scheme really gains momentum after 1919, In Egypt. And so, in some ways, it's about having a hedge um, against possible disruptions in the Egyptian context. And so, the challenge for, and what was at the time a new idea national economic planning um, was how to make cotton which was a very lucrative crop in Sudan. I mean, one of the things that Sudanese planners are always talking about, um, whether or not it's Mahmoud Bekhary or Hamza Margani Hamza or, the, or John Carmichael, they're always talking about how Sudan is a low-cost cotton producer of relatively high-grade, um, long stem cotton. And, and one of the things that they struggle with is this question of how to turn what was a crop Clearly cultivated on the scale that is being cultivated um, to serve an imperial market. How do you make something like that work for what is now supposed to be a national economy? And that raised a lot of questions about what it meant to have a national economy. So building off of the work of someone like Timothy Mitchell, I argue that you have to actually construct what it meant to be a national economy. And so a lot of it has to do with what should be done with the revenue from the cotton crop. And so you have initially a crop um, which is tied to an imperial economy can possibly be exported at a globally economic level, though they find that's much harder, that the imperial and the global are not the same. Um, And then you have to figure out how to spend that money in order to build a national economy. And that's where development, I think, becomes really interesting in Sudanese case. Development in Sudan is about taking what had been an extroverted Economy, economy geared towards the the imperial or the or the international scale, and building something like uh, a domestic economy around it. And so, like a present day example would be, for instance, the the decision in Qatar in the nineteen nineties. They had a big debate inside Qatar of whether or not they should expand their natural gas fields, um, and if you. And one of the arguments from one side, from the more conservative side, was that no, right? Qatar exported enough oil and gas to meet you know, all of his conceivable local needs. And then the other side was like, but we can make so much more money if we export so much more oil and gas, because we, we have all this oil and gas. But if you export, you're exporting for a global market, right? You're exporting a commodity that is inherently internationalized. And then after the revenue come in, you have to decide how will you build a domestic um, economy, and so I think that's one of the big innovations of my book is that the construction of the domestic economy comes after um, the construction of Sudan as part of an imperial economy.
0: That's really interesting because it's sort of it's counterintuitive, as you just indicated. Um, so, I want to ask about another natural resource, which is the Nile, because in, I'm trying to fit sort of the Nile into this, this schema that you've laid out um, of sort of the imperial and the global. And the Nile to me um, is so central to Egypt's economy, for example, which I'm more familiar with. And I was curious because cattle and cotton do rely so much on water, but water also can provide energy. Sort of how does it figure into this scheme of, of, of national and international economies?
1: Hmm. I mean, within the Sudanese, within the colonial bureaucracy in Sudan, um, and then again, um, within the Sudanese nationalists, water plays a central role. And I even call it water nationalism. Um, One of the great debates is how you should manage the Nile. And so starting in the 1920s, the British actually argue, or in the interwar period, the British actually argue that the Nile should be managed as one united system you know, with large dam control, like, so sort of the debate that we're having now between Egypt and Ethiopia. Um, In many ways, in the 1920s, Egyptian planners, when they looked at the Nile, they saw it as one connected system. And the obvious place to put large dams and gather energy are actually in the Ethiopian highlands. But that has massive implications for the autonomy of the different nation states, right? So, for instance, one of the only arguments to build the Aswan Dam where it was built, hydrologically, it doesn't make very much sense, right? What Nasser is doing is he's exerting a nationalism over, over water rights. And much of the dialogue between the British and the Egyptians is about control over water um, and about potential vulnerability. but. The Sudanese are initially left out of the 1936 agreement, um, the Anglo-Egyptian treaty. Both the colonial representatives in Sudan and representatives of the Sudanese elite and nation. And one of the things that they start to argue is that Sudan, much like what the story I was telling with Qatar, was not making as much use of its land resources that it could irrigate because of restrictions placed on it by... Um, by Egypt and Britain, but for cultivation in Egypt. And that Sudan could be much wealthier if it was allowed to use its full and rightful share of the water resources of the Nile Valley, of the Nile River. And so you see that as a very early tension and impetus um, for the economic nationalism of the Sudanese state. And in similar ways one of the reasons that there's a preference for cotton over cattle in the early economic plans of the Sudanese state is that cotton could be sold or was sold um, in the imperial markets, and they thought that they could make an easy transition from an imperial market centered on Britain and with its own kind of preferences and protections to selling openly on the global market. And so selling to the other industrialized countries like Japan, Um, They think they can export it to the United States, but of course they can't because the U.S. is a massive cotton exporter to Germany, to Australia, et cetera, um, to other countries within the developing world. And this won't play out as well as they had hoped, but they thought that it would give them increased economic autonomy. Whereas livestock at this time was largely, the livestock trade in Sudan was largely regional. And so one of the things that the Sudanese planners are conscious about and also a bit hesitant about is becoming sucked into being a dependency of, Britain, of, of Egypt or Saudi Arabia, um, exporting their livestock um, only to the near abroad, which they thought would then, particularly to the markets of Cairo, which they thought would then um, put them in a subordinate position.
0: No, that's definitely just thinking about sort of what the last century in history for both Egypt and Saudi Arabia has been like. That's definitely something that was very wise of the Sudanese economic planners. I would not necessarily want to have been exporting to Saudi Arabia in like the late 1970s um, or Egypt around the time of the earthquake in the 90s, for example. So um, another, uh, I mean, another sort of vein running through this book is the word development. And it's, it's something that I both personally and professionally, I'm never quite sure what to do with because development implies um, the need for some sort of progress. And at least in in the field of intellectual history, that's a very difficult thing to quantify. And it becomes very much this elitist um, perspective on how to gauge ideas and how to sort of rank thinkers. And then you start it just becomes a very messy area when you think of sort of the, the, the term progress and all of its connotations. And, and again, sort of working backwards towards development. Um, so sort of how would you define development? Is it a tool? Is it a concept? Is it a very technical term that I'm sort of attaching all of these sort of um, values to? So how would you define development in the Sudanese context specifically, I guess?
1: I think development as it is interpreted in um, in the 1950s in Sudan, has all of these connotations ones that they're picking up from the arabic from the arabic writings on economics from egypt and ones that they're getting from the british right i mean if anything one of the big arguments and i think what was seen as a progressive argument at the time i guess progressive in all of its meanings um was that societies could catch up um in the sense that unlike some of the colonial discourses of the time, and even even the first professors of colonial economics and development economics at places like Oxford, would would question whether or not it was truly possible for all societies to develop. And I think part of what attracted um, the Sudanese elite to the notion of development was that economics was seen as a race-neutral language, right? And so instead of talking about the special characteristics of a particular society, characteristics that invariably um, made them different or perhaps justified why there was a lack of some sort, um, the language of economics seemed to suggest with the correct incentives, um, if systems are structured properly or scientifically, that it would be possible for Sudan or, you know, Nigeria or um, Thailand, for instance, to catch up with a global standard. And even more powerfully, we can measure. Um, So we can measure whether or not Policies being conducted in Sudan today are more effective than those, say, being conducted in, in Ghana, right? So in the late 1950s, Sudan is, I guess, what we would consider to be a conservative African country um, versus someone like versus Ghana's Nkrumah, um, which was seen as a more radical African country, a more revisionist country. One more willing to buck international norms and to pursue um, a more ambitious plan of development, and so you can compare, right? And so you see Sudanese thinkers constantly writing about Nkrumah and asking themselves, you know, are our policies better or worse? Or Sudan so can compare itself with, you know, the policies of of Cairo. Um, what's being done in Cairo? does industrialization make sense? And the Sudanese would often say, you know, if we're going to have industrialization, we're going to have a different form of it. We're going to have one that continues to be based on our agriculture, and we're not going to pursue heavy industrialization. Or they can look at, you know, Saudi Arabia, and they say explicitly, you know, Saudi Arabia is not a model that we can pursue because they're a petroleum state, but we can look at a relatively resource-constrained state like Transjordan or Jordan um and so you can have this kind of dialogue which in some ways is both hierarchical in that it aspires to um to catching up with nations like England or the United States but it also holds out the promise for comparison and learning from other examples right so you can try things out and it seems that the future is something that can be held in the hands of of these experts right of people who have learned sufficiently to actually make societal change
0: yeah, and I think that these experts who are sort of the thrust of this development um, are really sort of they're the core of the book, and I mentioned before that you emphasize repeatedly throughout the book that nationalism is not the only answer. And that's understandable, given the fact that at least in Middle Eastern history, there's been this Plethora of studies on nationalism that do very little to actually tell you what was happening on the ground, what experts in Egypt or Jordan were doing, um, instead focusing on sort of the ideas that were propagating both on official levels and unofficial levels, which are useful. Um, So I suppose what I want to ask you, because, again, we've sort of been dancing around the topic of nationalism, um, is... What is the role of nationalism in Sudan, and why should should we be cautious of it? Sort of its its emphasis in the academic literature or in our conversations about nationalism in everyday life. I mean, I think
1: in a way, I I, I was writing this project in between two waves, particularly maybe, um, you know, this literature on nationalism, which was still kind of present when I sort of started my PhD, you know, in the in like two twenty. 2006, and particularly the Middle Eastern literature, and then this big wave coming, um, maybe around twenty thirteen, in the Africa literature, which questions nationalism as a endpoint. Um, and and I think one of the problems with both literatures is that they look at they look at what they describe as intellectuals, right? And so when I started my project, I thought I was going to go to Sudan and find what we might consider to be classic economic intellectuals, like people who were writing large tomes on the future of the Sudanese economy, what should it be? And instead I found a different type of actor. These were, they were all men, um, and they were largely, they had largely gone to the elite schools in Sudan, but they quickly entered the bureaucracy. And the first generation of people, like Hamza Murgani Hamza, entered the bureaucracy just as the colonial period was ending. And they're suddenly promoted from sort of low-ranking bureaucrac- bureaucrats to the pinnacle of economic management. And I would say they're actually kind of like economic diplomats. What they do is they sort of travel around and they to other countries and represent Sudan economically, even if they don't have the full information for what they're supposed to be representing. Um, even if they don't have all the statistics to back it up. They sort of represented that the UN or the World Bank or... In, India or in London, Um, and they sort of build backwards an apparatus um, to make these representations real. But they also are trying to solve very tactical problems, like how are we going to actually balance the budget this year um, when the cotton price has gone down and we had budgeted for a cotton price at this level and we have this much of a gap? So, sort of if you were, you know, the oil minister in, in Saudi Arabia, you have really practical problems, right? About the, the exact workings of the international oil market and how it's going to interrelate with the domestic economy in Saudi Arabia. And so they have a similar problem, except for they have cotton, which unfortunately is much less it's much less lucrative. Mm-hmm. But it's serving a similar purpose in the 1950s for for Sudan. It's largely a one staple, one commodity economy. Um, And so, but what I want to argue is that actually it's a bit of a distraction to focus primarily on, I guess, quote-unquote, typical intellectuals because in a place like Sudan, and I think this is true for the African literature at large, right, intellectually, the idea of Sudan was one was one of many ideas floating around. I mean there were so many other ideas an Anglo-egyptian union, um, regional autonomy, a southern independent state um, Sudan is some part of the Arab world, an African Union, an East African Union. I mean there were so many different ideas floating around and it's not obvious that a united Sudan was for many the most attractive option. And so why did it actually happen? And what I want to argue, or what I argue in my book, is that it actually happened because of the mundane details of budgeting and planning. And I think this is why it happened across the post-colonial world. That it was very hard to create new units um, once you had already established a financial apparatus. And then it raises a certain set of questions, right? So because the financial apparatus was already set to think of Sudan as a separate unit, for instance, from Egypt, if you were going to create a union, now you have to ask all these nasty technical questions of who's going to subsidize who, how is revenue going to be shared, um, or are the Sudanese much poorer than the Egyptians? Are... Are they going to be allowed, you know, to come in large numbers and to work in the markets? Um, and these types of questions, I think, were actually impossible to answer in any way except for um, sort of devolution into these nation states. Or it was at least very difficult, I think. And I think that explains um, why the nation state phenomenon becomes so um, so universal, right? so, for instance, in Frederick Cooper's story about West Africa, sure, I think intellectuals in both West Africa and in France would have known that some kind of federation was probably the ideal option, you know, a federation with greater autonomy. But was France, which saw itself as a much wealthier country, was it going to indefinitely subsidize West Africa? Um, could those decisions be made? And, and what would it have meant? And so I, I think that's why it's important to look at the budgetary apparatus, at um, the decisions about what will be in one budget, right? And so in Sudan, they, they, they don't do what Nigeria does. They downplay and refuse to build up, for instance, regional budgets. And so in Nigeria, you see much larger regional autonomy playing out, whereas in Sudan, and power to the regions, right? Because they have their own budgets. Whereas in Sudan, they say that there will only be one national budget. And in part, they do this because one of the big complaints that they had against the British was the creation of closed districts, the idea that Arabs wouldn't be allowed to go into African districts. And they see that as one of the major hardships of the colonial um, experience. And Never again, they basically say. And so part of that means that there will only be one Sudanese economy, one Sudanese nation, and I think those are um, very important questions, which I think actually help to play out, help to draw out um, the importance of looking at these sort of less sexy, but I think still intellectual um, constructions that you find in budgets and economic plans, et cetera.
0: No, I really appreciate that, partially because even though I orient myself within the field of intellectual history, I think you always have to think sort of of the practical considerations of what it is to put an idea into the marketplace and sort of what happens. I think anyone who sort of creates an idea thinks about what happens after you export it, sort of what happens um, after you publish it in a book or a newspaper. And even then, before the idea is actually launched into that space, I think, I mean, this is sort of one of the things that I'm trying to contend with as I write my dissertation is how do people couch their ideas? Is an idea ever a pure thing? Um, and this is why I think it's so important. And um, in intellectual history, there's there's been sort of it's been trendy in and out, sort of to do this to to contextualize and to contextualize and contextualize because the context will always affect the idea. Um, so speaking, sort of of genres of history how do you consider different genres of history? Because I approach this book sort of as an economic history. Um, But then again, as you said also, um, the role of these experts is also very important. It's not just about the numbers, it's about sort of how people engage and how people plan, but also how the politics and the colonial experience affects um, these individuals.
1: I think I'm writing somewhere in between um, intellectual history and economic history. And I'm writing about experts that operate that see themselves self-consciously operating within um, very practical constraints of the functioning of a national economy and an international economy. And they and they see themselves as making the decisions of the everyday, right? And they see themselves as making mostly practical decisions. But they're inventing new practices. So and I think that's part of what I'm trying to trace, is that it's an idea. Um, development itself is an idea. The idea of catching up is an idea that has massive practical consequences in transforming the shape of the of the society, for instance, like when they start doing national income accounting in Sudan, which seems like a you know a technical thing, how are you going to measure the GDP of Sudan? It actually has massive implications for um, how you will govern Sudan right because you 'll start governing towards these new measurements. Um, and you have to make conceptual decisions about, you know, is should we do um, a national income account at the regional level? Should we do it only at the national level? What, what does it mean to have a national economy? Um, what does development towards a national economy mean? And so what types of projects are important? What types of autonomy and access to the market um, and so I think, in a way, I study, I guess, what I would call the humblest of intellectuals, like these intellectuals who, who don't think of themselves as writing um, manifestos, but see themselves as, um, as practicing every day to solve small problems, small crises.
0: So on a similar note, just speaking of genres of history writing, um, I noted earlier in this interview sort of how the global has such a huge presence in this book, which is, you know, to some, I mean, you would look at the sort of the cover or the blurb and assume that it's just about Sudan, but the global is just ever present. And it's clear just speaking to you now that that's always at the back of your mind. Um, So where do you fall on sort of the line of global history? Because it's sort of the big fight in the field of history writing is, well, is global history just trendy or does it have a legitimate place in um, the writing of history? And then as as you mentioned, Frederick Cooper, Frederick Cooper, to some extent has rather negative views on the emergence of, for example, global intellectual history, because to some extent he argues it's always been global.
1: I mean, I acknowledge that global history in many ways is a trend of the moment, but and I don't know if I would say I'm set out to write a global history or if I did I very explicitly want to write what I consider to be a global history from Sudan. Um and so I think part of my larger mission or my project has been to write global history from the perspective of Africa and the Middle East. So what does the world look like, you know, from the eyes of these admittedly elite men in cartoon. Um, how are they? How do they understand their their society and their country's place within this um, international system? And it forces me to trace the story out and to use many of the archives of global history. For instance, like the IMF and the World Bank. But what I'm trying to always be conscious of doing is not telling a story about the IMF and the World Bank, right? Or, you know, I'm not trying to tell a story about American foreign policy in the Middle East or, um, or these external factors, except for the extent that it helps me tell a story about the construction of a modern Sudan. Um, and to make that be the object of my, of my, of my historical analysis. But what I think global history as a perspective or a methodology helps us do, though, is to understand that the making of modern Sudan is not um, a provincial story, right? It is Sudanese men and women shaping the global order and their place in the global order for themselves, right? I mean, of course under massive pressure from all sorts of things, but they are building a place for themselves in global society. And I think it's also very important to remember when studying um, the experts that I feature in my book, like Hamza Margani Hamza or Mahmoud Bihari. sometimes people will ask, why did they do what they did? And part of it is that they themselves... Want to be recognized as members of a global society, right? And I think that was an ambition that was widely shared amongst the Sudanese, um, amongst the educated classes in Sudan. These are men and women who saw part of decolonization as part of the promise of decolonization as the, being, as the ability to stand as members of a global society with the potential of equality, or at least a fair place for themselves in it.
0: No, I I absolutely love that point, just because that's sort of, I mean, my work um, is in the 1850s and it has to do with newspaper and newspapers and newspaper writing, but that's definitely how I think these newspaper um, journalists and editors saw themselves as trying to um, espouse a worldview that blended the global and the local and really saw it as, as you you use the term uh, global order or world order, um, saw themselves as part of this world order and didn't necessarily, it was it was seamless to them and to some extent, the global and the local. And that was something they very much wanted to push to this emerging literate group of elites um, that was constantly changing and they knew that it would shift. So I mean, that's just, that's I, I completely agree with that. And also just putting it in the hands of, evoking the idea of um, sort of this ordinary elite as you mentioned, that these people who didn't see themselves as intellectuals, but definitely um, solving these small crises, um, trying to sort of level the playing field because they knew that it's not a question of a hierarchy. I think sometimes I think it's also a question of like, um, you know, you have to play the game now if you're part of the world order. It's an increasingly to some extent global world or at least it professes itself to be that and you have to at least put your foot forward. Um, So I really appreciate sort of how you laid that out. So to switch gears for a moment, um, I'm a bit of an archive junkie. I like hearing about sort of how people build their archives, um, what research, experience are like, research experiences are like. So what was it like to work on Sudanese archives? Because I know that not all Sudanese archives are in Sudan because there's the, the archive at Durham University, for example. So what was the research experience like just generally um, going forward in this book?
1: I mean, the archive at Durham University is a wonderful archive, and I think it's a great resource for anyone who's particularly doing um, 19th century and colonial Sudan. And it's, it's really interesting because it's not a state archive. And so unlike a lot of the archival sources that you might find in Q, it's organized by individuals. And so it's, it's basically a series of personal collections, which is a very interesting experience for doing colonial um, um, history. And then in Sudan itself, I was very lucky that I was able to use the National Records Office and, and have very wide ranging access, which I know for many um, historians working in other regions of the Middle East might not always be true. That you can actually just walk in to the National Records Office and be like, hey, I would like to see the records in the financial ministry. And, you know, from the 1950s through the 1960s, even a little bit of the 1970s, you could read those files. Um, The files are not cataloged. There's only a a record of depository. So, you know, you know that boxes have been deposited by various ministries. But you can't see um, any description of what may be in those boxes until they come out. And so that was a bit of a challenge. And also, I think I was lucky that I wanted to see finance ministry files. And as far as they were concerned, no one, particularly no foreign researchers, wanted to see foreign finance ministry files. And so I think I was given wider access than to many of those who want to see, who want to work on what might be considered the more traditional topics of Sudanese history, such as the interior ministry, um, Looking at land management questions, looking at the management of the different provinces, you know, where it, it comes more into the management of ethnic difference within ethnic and racial differences within Sudan. And so as far as they were concerned, finance wasn't a, a venue in which you could answer or talk about those questions. And I don't think they the archivists really thought hadn't really thought through the idea that you could maybe raise certain questions of intellectual and political history from reading um, the finance files. They had a much narrower idea of what economic history, what types of questions economic history could answer. And I think that gave me, in many ways, an advantage. Uh, It was also a very interesting year to do archival work in Sudan. And so I think now the archives are less accessible than they were when I went. Um, for my primary archival research, which was 2008 to 2009. Um, I spent about eight months in Khartoum. And um, and it was the year, it was still in this um, period of the comprehensive peace agreement. So there was still a question about whether or not South Sudan would succeed, but the peace treaty had already been signed during this five-year interim period in which, the SPLA, the Southern People's Liberation Army movement was still a partner with the uh, um, national Congress party and government in Khartoum. And I think that this political rivalry also opened up um, more space in the archive and in the political and academic environment in Khartoum itself. And also it was before the indictment of Omar al-Bashir, President Omar al-Bashir, um, mm-hmm. By the International Criminal Court, and, and that indictment, I think, also closed off some of the space. But as far as the Sudanese government was concerned, it was obvious that they hadn't committed the crimes that they were being accused of in Darfur, and they thought that opening up, partially opening up the archival record would actually be beneficial to them, and then they would later realize that it wasn't going to be beneficial. And this is not to say that they didn't commit those crimes, but it was a moment in which some elements of the Sudanese government thought that an opening to foreign researchers would actually be beneficial to the Sudanese. And so I think politics of the moment plays a big a big role. But using the sources, you can see the language policy change. So you can see... Um, you know, in the late 1940s, most of the sources are in English and you can see how they they become um, almost all Arabic sources as the 1950s go on into the 1960s. You can see different um, strategies depending on um, different rhetorical strategies, depending on the seniority of the officials writing the sources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, it's a wonderful resource that isn't used very often.
0: Yeah, God, I envy you because I think, like, as you, you noted, it's just becoming access is becoming increasingly difficult um, across the Middle East. And I, you know, national archives are always a problem. And increasingly, I'm hearing of problems getting to um, sort of pre modern or early modern sources. So we're talking even sort of the 15 and 1600s in Egypt. Um, and then increasingly difficult access to manuscripts, which is just another layer of just like, we thought this was a safe space. We thought sort of, you know, the 1200s, the 1700s and manuscripts and intellectual history was safe, but it's becoming increasingly difficult as well. Um, and then, of course, there's always the case of the Israeli National Archives, which is, is very difficult to get to. And then lots of information is redacted. So it sounds like you had a lot of luck. And then, of course, your topic helped a lot, as you mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I want to congratulate you on the book. It's It was really, as as someone who does intellectual history, I... Found it really easy to read, surprisingly. I was like, okay, I don't have... Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And again, just sort of you bring Sudan back into the background. So congratulations again. So to close the interview, uh, I'd like to ask, if you wouldn't mind giving us a teaser, what are you working on now?
1: Right now I'm beginning to work on a project about Sudanese um, business families. And I'm hoping to use this project to think about... Return some of the basic questions that I was asking before, but to really think about... um, how wealth is accumulated and preserved in countries like Sudan, um, in both Africa and the Middle East, and to use it to think about how countries like Sudan fit into the global economy. Like, what does it look like if you trace the behaviors and investment strategies and circulations of capital and finance from um, the admittedly more successful Sudanese merchant class? Where do they, where do they invest? Um, Who are their business partners? How do they look at the region? So for instance, there's been a big turn towards Ethiopia as one of the large frontier markets or, you know, the old investments that they've always had in places like South Africa. What exactly is the relationship if you use these business families, many of whom started their careers in the colonial period, um, to the arab gulf for instance or you know to what extent is the sudanese economy actually integrated with the egyptian economy one of the things that always surprises me is even in things like currency exchange how independent the sudanese economy actually appears to be from the egyptian economy um how little egyptian pounds actually seem to circulate within sudan itself um and so I would like to do, write a history um, of these types of networks. And I think the big payoff from that would be to not make any assumptions sort of about the wall between Africa and the Middle East, for instance, and to actually try to use um, these actors to draw a map of what the economy actually looks like. Um, I'm most interested in the second half of the 20th century, but um, even up to the present. What does the economy actually look like for business families doing work? I mean, the largest families all have their own deals with South Korean companies, for instance, and Malaysia. What actually um, does this economic network, how does it actually look?
0: That sounds like a wonderfully productive project. And I mean that in productive in sort of the most positive of ways, um, partially because there's this new wave of economic history coming out of the Middle East and it's something we've we sorely, sorely miss. So um, yeah, thank you again for the interview and best of luck on your future project. Thank you again.
1: Thank you again, Nadir.